All right, I promise we're really, 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 really recording this time. Recording for reals this time. Something funny just happened. We were recording, but we didn't hit record. And so <laughs> we had a kick-ass podcast about 40 plus minutes. Before we realized, we turned the monitor away so that we wouldn't be distracted by looking at the audio waves. And it turns out you can accidentally not hit record all the way. <laughs> you really don't pay attention to the monitor. Yeah. If you turn it away from yourself. Yep. Lesson learned. <laughs> the way lessons do get learned the hard way. You're listening to Always Carry a Body Bag, and I'm your host. Dave Deluxosaurus sitting here <laughs> with my co-host, the beautiful, lovely, smart Lauren Riot. Hello. We have another podcast for you. I think this is going on our Patreons first. We're going to release it to Patreon first and then it'll go on all the public forums a couple or all the public channels a couple days later. There we go. We have some business to take care of. I think, do we have shout outs? Yep. We've got both. We got some shout outs and business to take care of. First order of business is shouting out Persephone Dark for that kick-ass theme song we just got. Did y'all like that? That was nice. Say yes. Persephone rules. Or we'll find you. (laughs) Let's see. Well, we've got our patrons. Our five. Our five patrons. Yeah. So we'll shout them all out. Our first shout out. Is <laughs> our timing is a little funky. We wasted okay. all of our timing on that imaginary that podcast. Imaginary podcast. Right. It was good. It it was good. Now it's gone. Our first shout out is Bree and John. Woo! Love you guys. Our second shout out is Gracie. Hey Grace. Our third shout out is J E, our security culture conscious patron. And our final shout out nope. goes out to Nope. They don't want to be named. so It's not our final shout out. It's not our final Our fourth sh- shout out is Lauren, my sister from another mister. Hey, Lauren. Our, uh, our newest, Canadian, our Canadian friend. Yeah. Our Canadian listener. So we got him around the globe. We're international now. Watch out. And our newest and final patron shout out is Lindsay. Hey, Lindsay. What's up, Lindsay? How's your pooch doing? He means Isis. Isis. <laughs> I don't know I, why. I knew it was when named he Isis. Said that, he said oh, pooch. Like pooch. <laughs> and it just sounded like, it sounded like, there were, well, there were a couple ways you could take it. Like, it almost sounded like a different word that rhymes with pooch. <laughs> but like, yeah, it sounded like it could be. How's the lower part of your tummy doing? <laughs> Hopefully well. Also, your dog. Hope your dog is great. Love you, Isis. Give Isis pets for us. Our last order of business. I just cracked my knuckles. I cracked mine at the same time. We're so romantic. <laughs> Our last order of business is that we have a we have a business that we're working with. We have a promo code for. So we're going to drop it now and then probably we'll record an ad and stick it two-thirds of the way through this this podcast. And you can hear about the product a little bit more but we're working with blades for babes and we have a promo code aca body bag and you can get 10 percent off any of your purchases from blades for babes i'm excited for this one 10 percent off of all of your stabbing devices we love our blades for babes blades say that three times fast blades for babes blades i don't want to say time <laughs> we'll bore them i was about to try <laughs> all right do you want to tell everybody who we're talking about today Jesus Christ. Gigi Allen. Yes, I want to talk about who we're... (laughs) We're punchy now. This is what you get after 40 minutes of unrecorded podcast. Who are we talking about today, Dave Deluxosaurus? We are talking about... I forgot her name just now. Belle Gunness. Nope, that's what I was going to say. You just go, we're talking about Belle Gunness, and I'll cut it. No, you don't have to put that in there at all. We're talking about Belle Gunness. <laughs> black Widow. But she was white. But she was a black widow. But she was a black widow. But yeah, she was white. All right, I'm going to set the scene for you. Are you ready? This is a beautiful fairy tale. I love fairy tales. Me too. Because they always end with happy endings. That's right. Once upon a time, it was the 1860s. Once upon a time, there lived a young peasant dairy maid named Brynhilda 
who lived on a farm called Storset. I had to look up the official Norwegian pronunciation. You're welcome. Storset. Storset. I like that. Once upon a time, there lived a young peasant dairy maid named Brynhilda, who lived on a farm in Storset. <laughs> in Storset, in a tiny hamlet called Ingbia in the Selbu province. Selbu sits on the beautiful west coast of Norway and is known for its traditional black and white eight-pointed star knitting pattern. All throughout Selbu are woods, swamps, mountains, freshwater lakes and rivers, and farms carved into the land around little hamlets and towns. Doesn't it sound nice? It does sound like a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. It's going to keep sounding like a fairy tale for a minute. Brynhilda spent her days working hard in the fields, milking, churning, drawing water, and minding cattle, and her evenings knitting Selbu star design mittens, hats, and other objects. Since her family was too poor to afford firewood, she was also sent out daily to collect kindling from the woods, known in Norway as Schnurkvist. Townsfolk would call her Schnurkvist Paula, and that means Paul's twig daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Brynhilde would sit with her mother Berit, father Paul, and seven older siblings around their meager twig fire each night and take turns telling stories of mythical beasts and ancient princesses while they tended their various handicrafts. Doesn't that sound kind of lovely? Yeah. Minus the poverty. Family craft hour. Her father, Paul Peterson Storshit, was a sharecropper and leased just one acre of the Storshit farm to grow crops, which was barely enough to keep the family of nine from starving. In the brutal winters, he'd take up work as a stonemason, and at least once he had to apply for public welfare to keep everyone fed. Brynhilde was hired out as a dairymaid to a neighbor on the farm to earn for the family. She was a good and pious girl who was confirmed in the Evangelical Lutheran Church at 14 and worked hard to please her family. Shortly after, the Prince of Selbu rode down a road in Storshit, saw beautiful Brynhilde milking one of her neighbor's cows, and knew that she must be his wife. He jumped out of his moving carriage, causing chaos in the royal caravan, swept over to Brynhilda, falling to one knee, and proposed right then. She was like, nope, you're 50. (laughs) Stunned, Brynhilda agreed, but gave the condition that her family be awarded lands and titles and never forced to search for twigs to keep warm again. The prince smiled, enthusiastically agreed, took Brynhilda's hand, and led her to his waiting carriage. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. (laughs) All of that happened except for the prince. The prince never came. Her pastor described Brynhilda as good in religious knowledge and diligence, which he said was a ranking that only one half of the girls in the church obtained. So she was a good, pious girl. Okay. The prince didn't come for her, though. There's no prince of Selbu. I made that up. (laughs) Yeah, I thought so. And everyone lived happily ever after. Just kidding. Her, Her neighbor and employer, Radha, described her as a diligent human being in all that in all ways behaved well. I really like how Norwegians talk about people as human beings. That's how they talk. They don't say person. They say human being. They want to make that clear. Well, maybe animals can be people to them. Years later, the town would remember her poorly. The town newspaper, the Selvigen, described her as remembered by many as a very bad human being, capricious and extremely malicious. She had unpretty habits, always in the mood for dirty tricks, talked little, and was a liar already as a child. That's just because she probably stood up for herself. Maybe. As a grown-up, she was still little respected and was a scum of society. That was how they described her. But this was after she was busted. Oh, she gets busted. It's a true crime podcast. Yeah, she gets busted. (laughs) I thought I we did. were just telling a fairy tale <laughs> yeah. for this episode. <laughs> I did say she <laughs> was a black widow. Swish it up on you. Later, a story would come out that she had some type of tryst with the son of a wealthy landowner who got her pregnant but was never going to marry her. The story said that he took her somewhere no one would see and beat her till she miscarried. This account also states that he died of an ailment suspiciously like arsenic poisoning shortly after, but there's no documentation of this, and the story came out after she had immigrated to the U.S. and made a name for herself, so it's questionable whether or not it actually happened. Her older sister, Olena, immigrated to the U.S., married John Larson, and changed her name to Nellie Larson. Brynhilde followed several years later at her sister's invitation. It was Nellie and John who paid her passage to the U.S., and Brynhilde was to stay with them when she arrived. That's sweet. 
little chain migration. Helping a sister out. An actual sister. Again, she's, she's white. <laughs> the passage must have been awful. She took a four-day voyage on a steamship from Trondheim, Norway, to the city of Hill in England. And this is how the passengers who rode on that trip described the food. For breakfast, there was always sweet tea without milk and dry hard biscuits, and the same for supper. There was butter, but it was so rancid that we could not digest it. For dinner, soup with meat, but there was no taste to the soup, and the meat was salty as a herring. One day we had salted fish with a dash of soup, but it was inedible for most of us, and we just ended up dumping our portions into the sea. The privies on the ship, on the steamship, were terrible. They were described as small, cramped, dark spaces without water. Those for men and women being close together, the entrance in no way protected from the weather, altogether more evil-smelling, unsatisfactory places it is difficult to imagine. Oh. After disembarking at Hull, at Hill, or I'm sorry, there's a typo in the first one. They went to the city of Hull in England, and after disembarking at Hull, they would have a short layover in town, and then they would take a train to Liverpool, and then they'd board a steamer to America. A lot of the steamers to America left out of Liverpool. The ships were no better than the Tasso in terms of food, lodging, or privies, and in fact were probably worse due to rampant seasickness that people experienced. The trip was around 10 or so days. Brynhilda made her way to Chicago to join her sister and promptly changed her name to Bella Peterson. She took up domestic work and turned her wages over to her sister for her keep. Nellie said, My sister was insane on the subject of money. She never seemed to care for a man for his own self only for the money or luxury he was able to give her. Get it, girl. Remind you of anyone? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Please help me, guys. I'm broke. If money was I, what I was after, I, I would I, never I, have I, fallen I, in love with you. I was just you. <laughs> about to say that. At 24, she married 29-year-old Mads Ditlef Anton Sorensen. He was a night watchman at Mandel Brothers Department Store. I like the name Mads. Like Mads Mikkelsen from Hannibal. Oh, yeah. With the uh -huh. excellent bone structure. I, I know it as a short name for Madison. I've known a few people mm. named Madison. Because you're from SoCal. They call her Mads. Is that a SoCal name, <laughs> That's Madison? That's totally a SoCal name. There's only one picture of Mads. He has a big mustache, and he's this, like, burly looking. He kind of looks like a frontiersman, but it's not really the frontier where they are in Chicago. There's not a lot of information about their first 10 years of marriage, but I'll tell you everything I could find out. Bella wanted children. People said she had a great love for children and would often do childcare at church and community events. When she was unable to conceive for the first several years of her marriage, she became really attached to her sister's younger ch youngest child, Olga. I like that name, Olga. Nellie said, she was an awfully cute little girl and my sister demanded to have her to rear. Okay. I like your kid. Let me have it. Yeah. They used to give kids away back in the day. They did. Yeah. That's going to come into play a lot in this story. Like, yeah, he's in a burlap sack. You can have him if you can put a shirt on him. <laughs> yeah. If you can put a shirt on him, you can have this kid. Yeah. Olga was allowed to visit with her Aunt Bella for six weeks once, but Nellie said that she refused to let Bella adopt my little daughter. And from that day, my sister would hardly speak to me. In 1891, after eight years of marriage, Bella would finally become a mother. The Olsons, a couple in the Sorensons' neighborhood who they had befriended, had an eight-month-old daughter named Jenny. The girl's father later explained how Bella came to be her mother. He said, When Jenny was eight months old, her mother was dying. Mrs. Sorensen begged the dying woman to bequeath the child to her. My wife put the baby in Bella's arms and called on her to swear that she would guard the little one as her own, rear and care for her. Bella swore that she would regard the pledge as sacred. My wife died soon afterward. After Bella took the child, I saw her frequently. She brought Jenny to me often and kept her well-dressed. The child was happy. What happened to the dad? The dad was just like, take her? Dads don't take care of kids in 1891. <laughs> Dads don't take care of kids in 2021. Yeah. But they get custody of them. Take the kid. It's yours. In, in this case, years later... Anton Olsen remarried, and he tried to regain custody of little Jenny, but Bella fought him in court and won. Yep. She won custody of her. Where was your ass earlier? Honestly, if she didn't turn out to be a serial killer, I'm down with that. If you hand your baby off to someone and they rear them for several years, 
Yeah. It's yeah. fucked up to the kid to try and take them back. But it, again, children were just swapped around like little trading cards back in those days. Yeah, that's what I said. As for Mads, he was not earning much at the department store. He brought in about $15 a week, which is about $450 a week now. Somehow the couple managed to save enough money to buy a small candy store. And they ran it out of the street level of a two-story building. And they sold what bodegas sell, basically. They sold cigarettes, candy. Dockies, Arizona iced teas. Yes, vitamin waters. Yeah. Newspapers, magazines, yeah. black and measies. <laughs> <laughs> the store did poorly. And one day when Bella was alone, this is not because Bella was lazy, for the record. She was not a lazy serial killer. She was she was a hard worker. Oh, it takes a lot of strength to stab. Yeah. So the story was doing really <laughs> bad. And one day when Bella was alone at the store with three-year-old Jenny, a fire broke out. The Chicago Tribune reported, The first known of the fire was when Mrs. Sorensen, with her child, came running out onto the sidewalk crying fire at the top of her voice. So she started the Chicago fire. Just the fire in the candy store. Oh, yeah. The interior was completely destroyed, and though Bella had said that a small kerosene lamp had exploded, neither firefighters nor insurance investigators could find a trace of the broken lamp or even broken glass. Even though arson was suspected, Bella and Mads received an insurance payment, and the Sorensons sold the store to the brother of its original owner. So they pulled a straight-up H.H. Holmes. Mm-hmm. They got a double cash out on it. Smart. Yeah. This is just the beginning for her. This was like, they talk about serial killers and how the first time they kill, a lot of times it's an accident and they realize, oh, I really like this. And I think for her, this insurance fraud was like, oh, I really like doing whatever the fuck I want and getting money. She's a hustler. After this, they moved to the comparatively nicer suburb of Austin. Not Texas. Austin, Illinois. Good. Right. Texas is canceled. And they bought a three-story house with bay windows. That sounds really nice. At some point, someone asked Bella about her first husband. And all she had to say about him was, he provided me with a nice house. Over the course of the next two years, 1896 to 1898, they'd become parents to four more children. Caroline, Myrtle, Axel, and Lucy. Many people do not believe that Bella gave birth to these children. Four in two years, first of all, is your... None of them are twins. Yeah. So there's your first clue that she didn't give birth to these children. Also, she seems to not be able to have her own children. There's no evidence that she ever had her own children. There's a lot of evidence that she had adopted children. She just asked people for their children. Yeah. She was really big. <laughs> Just like really big and strong. She punked people for <laughs> She's their like, children. Give me your baby. And her sister her sister was probably big too. That's probably why her sister got to keep little Olga. So there's no documentation to show how they came into her care. Some people have insinuated that she was getting money for taking the kids, but there's no evidence to show that she was making any money off of it. Little Caroline died at five months old of enterocolitis, which is acute inflammation of the bowels. And Axel died of hydrocephalus, which is a buildup of cerebrospinal fluid in the brain. That's incidentally wow. something that's pretty common, hydrocephalus. But now there's treatment for it. So kids usually don't die from it. That's awesome. Uh, the same thing with enterocolitis because we have antibiotics now. Mad started working at Chicago and Northwestern Railroad and he was bringing home $12 a week. So he took a pay cut, but they were able to keep that house. On the evening of Friday, October 1st, 1897, this guy comes and knocks on their door, Angus Ralston, and he proposes a business venture to them. He's like the first Amway guy. Okay, okay. He said he was an agent of the Yukon Trading and Mining Company, and he told them that the company was, quote, a corporation of great financial resources that had been incorporated with a capital stock of $3.5 million owned by mines in New Mexico and had great and extensive interests in Alaska and Klondike regions. He just heard somebody say that shit. Sounds promising though, right? Yeah. He was looking to hire miners willing to spend a year in Alaska working for the company and prospect for gold with a chance to strike it rich. What do you think Bella thought of that? Get your ass over there yeah, and go find us like, some gold. Exactly. She's like, ditch my husband, strike it rich. Sounds like a plan. 
So she was all for it, and Mad signed into a formal agreement with the company less than four weeks later on October 27th. According to the terms, Mads agreed to go to Alaska and the employee of the company and prospect for gold, locate same, and do any other kind of work that the manager in charge of the expedition requires done for one year beginning April 1, 1898. In return, he would be paid the same wages as other men in the camps where the mines are located and then also receive one-fourth interest on all mines located by him. And that was along with 2,800 shares of stock in the corporation. And since the Sorensen family would be without their breadwinner for a full year, the company also agreed to pay Bella Sorensen, his wife, $35 each month while he's in their employ and to charge same to his account for salary. Sounds like okay. a winner. Yeah. Or a scam. She Bella asked for some money up front. Well, who asked for money up front? Here's your first sign that it's a scam. Let this be known. If someone is promising to make you money, but they want you to spend money to get you the money, there's a good chance it's a scam. Bella and Mads agreed to invest $700, which is the equivalent of $20,000 today, for his supplies for one year. They put up the deed to their home as collateral for the funds and handed it over to the Yukon Trading and Mining Company. Two months went by and they didn't hear from a company representative at all. So they found a lawyer to examine the books of the company and he found that it had absolutely no financial resources. Holy shit. What about their $700? (laughs) I was thinking. So they ended up filing suit. And they were able to save their home since they had put it up as collateral. They were in a real pickle because they had to pay back the loan on it. So they really had to get their money back or they could lose their house. But they were able to get the money back through the lawsuit, save their home. And Mads, instead of going back to the railroad company, went back to the Mandel Brothers department store where he was making a little bit more money. Yeah, that's good for him. Yeah, good for all of them. On the evening of Tuesday, April 10th, 1900... A fire broke out at their house. Damn, all these fires. Supposedly, this was due to a defective heating apparatus. Firefighters were able to save the building, but Bella and Mads reported $650 worth of destroyed household goods to the insurance company, and they were paid out. Right, and no heating apparatus was ever found. Probably not. But, you know, that type of insurance fraud I'm actually cool with. This is one of those crimes I don't... Insurance fraud doesn't bother me. They were probably in like an Airbnb while they burned down the place. They went and stayed in an Airbnb while they burned their house down to get their insurance money. I feel like that might have triggered an investigation. (laughs) Why weren't you home when your house burned down? We were on vacation down the street at an Airbnb. (laughs) Why were you? (laughs) Because the house was going to burn down. (laughs) We had to sleep somewhere. We couldn't sleep in a burning house. (laughs) In 1900... Mads had a life insurance policy with a $2,000 payout that would end July 30th. He didn't want there to be a lapse in coverage, so he took out another policy that would begin on July 30th, and that policy was for $3,000. You want to guess what happened on July 30th? He died. Yeah. On July 30th, Dr. J.C. Miller was called to the Sorensen's house where he found Mads fully clothed and fully dead lying on his bed. Bella told him that her husband had a headache that morning and she'd given him a dose of quinine powder from the pharmacist and gone downstairs to make the kids dinner. The doctor later wondered if the pharmacist had given her morphine by accident and asked if she could show him the paper the powder had come in, but she had conveniently already thrown it away. Which, to be fair, you know, you would throw a paper, you wouldn't save it, but... Ma'am, did you tape this fake label on there? It says cyanide underneath. Yeah, actually, it was later wondered if he had if it was strychnine poisoning when her reputation came into question there was the doctor looked back on it and said oh maybe it was strychnine poisoning but again shit you could probably pick up at the bodega down the street in that in those days i think people were picking up all kinds of weird chemicals they've made it a little bit harder to poison people since those days for better and for worse some people could use a good poisoning but we have, Alas. Uh, we have non-flavored arsenic now, right? No, arsenic was not flavored back that's, then. That's what it was. Yeah. And then so many people were being murdered by arsenic. And then also, I think it was dangerous for kids and pets because they couldn't tell that it was yucky. So they put a bitter flavoring in it 
so that you can taste it. So if you add arsenic to food, people can taste it. But it just tastes bad. Like, no one would be like, oh, this tastes like arsenic. (laughs) With nothing to go on besides the headache story, two doctors ruled Mad's death was caused by cerebral hemorrhage. Because he died on July 30th, Bella was able to collect both life insurance policies totaling 5K, which is about $150,000 today. Balling back then. Yeah. I mean, $150,000 today doesn't make you rich, but it'll make you comfortable for a little while. So her count on children is three kids now? She's got three kids now. She's got Jenny, and then she's got Myrtle and Lucy. Three days later, Mads was buried next to Caroline and Axel, and at the funeral, Bella's sister Nellie said she was gripped by a feeling something terrible was going to happen. Again, this came out later. Like, it could it could be a little dramatic, but sure. She had a premonition things were going sideways. Bella put out an ad looking for a new house, and she found a property in LaPorte, Indiana. The house had a little bit of a history. It was a really, it was a really nice property. It was originally owned by John Walker, who was one of the city's founders, and he had built a large house for his daughter and her husband. 20 years after that, they were run out of town for being Confederate sympathizers. Good. Right on. Fuck off. The house was sold to one B.R. Carr, who was a local coal and lumber merchant, and whose son, G. Heil Carr, became a notorious outlaw who died in a shootout during a bank robbery. The house passed through a few more hands, including two brothers who died suddenly and a farmer who hanged himself upstairs before it was bought by a madam named Maddie Altick, who turned it into a brothel. Supposedly, she was a real character. She wore a Gibson girl hat and she dressed super fancy and she'd go into town and she converted the house into this really glamorous. She was the madam of the house. She was the madam and she turned it into this really glamorous they called them resorts back then. So into a really glamorous resort with a lounge and... Okay, that sounds like fun. Yeah, she seemed cool. That Everything that I read about her, she seemed really cool. She was super fashionable and she was really confident. Like she was just like, yeah, I'm a madam. Fuck off. <laughs> I really liked everything I mean, that I read about her. She seemed cool. Everybody that I've heard of being a madam is a pretty cool person. She's so, yeah. So sadly, Maddie Altick died when she was living in the house. And her death was ruled as a complication of heart disease, but there were a lot of rumors of suicide and foul play because it was she was young. So it was really weird. Oh, uh, yeah. And it turned out that her sister had a competing resort nearby, and there was a really intense rivalry between the two of them, so it was suspected that her sister might have poisoned her. Oh, that sounds like another podcast in itself. Yeah, I don't. I couldn't find a lot about it, so I don't know if we could the really do a podcast. Sisters. We could do a wild speculation podcast. Yeah, that would be fun. Over the next eight years, several people bought and sold it before Bella found it and purchased it, and there wasn't anything especially interesting except that a lot of them had these weird, tragic ends. Like one one farmer hung himself, and another one died suddenly, and nobody could understand why. And when she took a black light to the whole house, it's like a Pollock painting. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was art to Bella. <laughs> when she moved, she changed her name to Belle. It was considered more American. But every time she was writing letters in Norwegian to people and things like that, she would sign her name Bella. Sometime during the first years of the Sorensen's marriage, they had taken in a boarder named Peter Gunnis. Obviously, her name's Belle Gunnis, so you can see where this is going. Okay. He was blonde. He was supposedly very handsome for the time. He was an immigrant from Oslo in Norway, and he'd been living with his brother, Gust Gunnis. I would assume his brother was Gustav, the Norwegian, Gus, common, yeah. Yeah. common Norwegian name. But he went by Gust. And he, so he was living with his brother, Gust, in Minneapolis, and then he went to Chicago and lived with the Sorensons. After that, he married a woman named Jenny Simpson, and they had a daughter named Swanhild in 1897, Four years later, they were having another baby, and Jenny Gunnis died of childbirth complications. So RIP, Jenny, that's really sad. It was difficult back then to deliver a baby. Yeah. It's difficult all the time to deliver a baby. It It was a little riskier then. In 1900, Belle was visiting her cousin in Minnesota shortly after acquiring the Laporte property, and she reacquainted herself with Peter. And she had marriage in mind, and he went for it. Now, this is where 
the writer the writer of this book that I am using for most of this research, obviously I did some internet research and have listened to podcasts. She's well covered. I've listened to other podcasts on it. But the, the author of this book, Harold Schechter, wrote Hell's Princess. I didn't say the the primary research source in the beginning, so I'll say it now. This is when he, so he's kind of awful about Belle's appearance through the whole thing. Really misogynist. The book is good. It has a ton of information. It has some of the best research and it has some of the most detailed compilations of court documents and news reporting and diving into which news stories were just straight up fictional and made up and which ones were real. What did he say? She was ugly? He was constantly talking about how ugly she was and how old she looked and how fat she was and how she looked like a toad. And so he says, in this section of the book, he says, Peter was really handsome. And so it just goes to show what a nice piece of property was in Laporte, that he would go for this marriage. And I was like... For the pad? Yeah. But like, really? And he does this with everyone, pretty much every one of her lovers that she has in the story. He's like, she was really hideously awful and fat. So probably it was for this. Like, shut up, guy. Yeah, that I would hate reading that over and over again. If you look at my book, I, I took notes in it with pencil. And every time he does it, I write something snarky on the side. <laughs> and to our top tier patrons, at some point, that book with all of my notes and snarky responses will go out to one of you can be yours five days after they were married the baby died the official cause of death was edema of the lungs and i remember my note in the book earlier when the other babies died i said i don't know if this is murder but what does this say about her parenting maybe she was like eh, four kids is a lot two kids like maybe don't take care of that one or whatever this money i earned is going pretty quick here <laughs> exactly exactly so I think I wrote in the notes, maybe this one was murder. (laughs) (laughs) The baby was shipped to Chicago to be buried with Belle's other children and Mads. Belle and Peter moved with with her three children and his daughter Swanhild to the port. So she just shipped the baby away and didn't go with it and just bury it? Well, they were in Indiana. Yeah. And or they were they were in maybe they were in Minneapolis and going to Indiana. It wasn't clear where the marriage happened. Both are close, but kind of far for the time to travel. But yeah, they just sent the baby to be buried. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't her baby, but it was his baby. Bell and Peter moved with her three children and his daughter Swanhild to Laporte. But after just eight months, there was trouble at the farmstead. It caught on fire. <laughs> it didn't catch on fire. She finally got a really nice, <laughs> really nice fucking house, and it's all the way hers. I don't think she's going to burn it unless she gets into real trouble and it's well insured. I don't think she's going to burn it. She, there's major H.H. Holmes vibes with her yeah. and then major Catherine Knight vibes with her. A kid caught on fire. No kids caught on fire. Well, okay. 12-year-old Jenny Sorensen came around to the nearest neighbors, fire poker in hand. <laughs> banging on their door at 3 a.m. This was Tuesday, December 16th. She said, Mama wants you to come up. Papa's burned himself. <laughs> I don't oh, wanna... she really had a fire poker with her. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it. She didn't set her husband on fire. She didn't set him on fire. Honestly, if she had set him on fire, she probably would have had an easier time of it than what she did do. And there wasn't any heating apparatus found. <laughs> yeah. Swan Nicholson, the neighbor, and his son Albert arrived to see Belle freaking out in the kitchen. She's like beside herself, hysterical, going on and on and on, like hard to even understand what she's saying. She's like, fuck, they're going to think I did this one. Well, (laughs) (laughs) Peter was lying face down in the parlor floor in his nightgown. Swan said he was laying on his nose and blood was on the floor. Swan said he took hold of his arms to feel a pulse and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't give me no answer. And I know that the time period makes it seem like he'd be like, and he wouldn't give me no answer, but he was Norwegian. He was a Norwegian immigrant, so it was probably a totally different accent. But he wouldn't give me no answer. <laughs> like the guy from from Frozen. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! <laughs> He's trying to check his pulse. Peter, yoo-hoo! <laughs> Quick, Olaf, put him out. <laughs> he wasn't on fire. <laughs> he wasn't on fire. <laughs> I just think she's fucking burning everything. <laughs> she's actually 
She's not. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I was going to say she's not a firebug, but you know what? I'm not going to say that because she was. Swan's son Albert went to get the doctor, Dr. Bo Bowell. And in my, my notes, I just wrote unfortunate. His last <laughs> name was Bowell. <laughs> Dr. Bo Bowell, who was the town's coroner at the time. When he arrived, he noted that Peter must have been dead for a while because rigor mortis was setting in. He had a nasty wound on the back of his head that was caked with blood, and his nose was broken and bent to one side. It's a weird fire. <laughs> Bowel immediately surmised that he had been murdered. Belle was reported to be close to hysterical at this time, but he sat down with her to question her about the past night's events. She said... Peter had gone downstairs to get his shoes that were warming near the stove, and as he bent down to pick them up, a meat grinder had fallen from the shelf above, hitting him in the back of the head. She said it had also knocked a bowl of hot brine onto the back of his neck. He assured her he was fine and laid down to rest, and a few hours later, she'd found him dead on the parlor floor. A likely story. <laughs> but he was so handsome. Nicholson took Albert home, very sure that Peter had been murdered, but he told his son not to say anything because he didn't want to cause trouble for Mrs. Gunnis. Or he didn't want to cause trouble with Mrs. Gunnis. <laughs> He's like, holy shit, <laughs> what she did to that grown-ass man. She threw a meat grinder at his ass. So because Belle Gunnis is a pig farmer and because she grinds meat for sausages, I didn't mean to do this. In terms of timing the podcast, I just ordered a few books and the Belle Gunnis book came in time. It was the first one that came for me to do the research, but she is kind of a sausage queen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you have a Catherine Knight book? No. No? She's a sausage queen, too. Yeah, I'm definitely getting like a little Catherine Knight-y kind of vibes. There's some Catherine Knight vibes. Not, Not as crazy, mentally. She's more stable. Yeah. Catherine Knight was unstable. Both really big women... And both renowned for their lovemaking abilities. Oh, really? That's what, that's what I was going to ask about Elgunis over here. Oh, she was a lover. She had the balmy. Mm-hmm. She did. She put a spell on men. Okay. Mm-hmm. Later that day, the postmortem was conducted by Bowell and Dr. H.H. H. Martin. They found no evidence of scalds or burns on the entire body. They found that his nose was lacerated and broken, showing evidence of severe blows or the result of falling upon a blunt article such as the edge of a board. He had a laceration through the scalp and external layer of the skull about an inch long, situated just above and to the left of the occipital protuberance. Híjole. Upon removing the pericranium, there showed a fracture and depression of the inner plate of the skull at the point corresponding to the external laceration. There was also marked intracranial hemorrhage. His head was busted. The postmortem report concluded that death was due to shock and pressure caused by fracture and the said hemorrhage. Dr. Bowell launched an inquiry with the jury to be held in the Gunness home because, like, none of it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. He's like, wait, there's something fishy here. I read a lot of the documents, and I feel like I would be better at lying to cover up this murder than Bell was when all was said and done. Like, why... Did why didn't she say that she heard him fall to the floor? Like give the impression that he hit his head. She didn't know how bad it was. He laid down and then at some point he got up, but because of the head injury, he fell down and that's how he broke his nose. She didn't present it that way. And she made up the story about the brine, but there wasn't any brine on his nightgown and he didn't have any burns. Like why yeah. was it even in there? It's not a really good liar. She's a terrible liar. And later you were, on... You were pretty good with your story you did just now. Thank you. I'll let you know if I ever cover up a murder. No, I won't. Yeah, I'm not sleeping. <laughs> later on, there's a police detective or something that says that she was this highly sophisticated criminal. And it's really wild what the standard was for a highly sophisticated criminal of the time because none of her stories ever sound good she doesn't go to any trouble at all to say anything convincing or make anything look convincing about anything that she does it's like she's just wild she's just like oh i have this kid now oh my failing candy store burned down oh my house burned down and it was full of expensive shit even though we don't have any money like she just says stuff and people are just like oh, okay she wasn't like a super assassin i mean the way that she convinced people of the wild shit that she said maybe she was the witch you go. Yeah, I don't think I she mean, was. I mean, they but bought it so many times before. I think 
I, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, it seems... She was a really good lover then. <laughs> Maybe she was just sleeping with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the following day, newspapers were putting out headlines like, crime of high degree and declaring murder was running rampant in the port. There had been a bunch of other murders that are irrelevant. And they said Peter's murder was mysterious and there were strong indications of foul play. Two days after Peter's death, on December 18, 1902, in the parlor where Peter died, Bell was a primary witness in the inquiry. So when Bell was asked to describe the events of the night, she said she put the kids to bed, she went to go stuff some sausage, she washed the meat grinder, she put it up on the shelf. Peter's in the parlor reading the newspapers. And she said, We were sitting here looking at them. I think it was after 11 o'clock. I said to him, I guess it's pretty near time to go to bed. He thought so too and picked up his pipe and went into the kitchen. He always used to lock the door before we went upstairs to sleep and I heard him make some little noise out there and he'd always put his shoes to the back of the stove to warm and I guess he must have been back to get a hold of a pair of shoes and all at once I heard a terrible noise and I dropped my paper and went. When I came out there he was raising up from the floor and putting both hands on his head. I had a big bowl with some brine on the back of the stove, and I was going to put it on some head cheese I left there. The bowl was full and hot, and I thought I couldn't use it until tomorrow morning, and I thought I might as well leave it there until morning. This is such a weird way to describe a situation. How did the brine get off of the stove onto his nose or clothes? I think it was supposed to be like the meat grinder fell and knocked into it and knocked it on him. But even her description of it, it's like... And there was brine, and I thought I could use it in the morning. And so I left it there until morning, in the morning. Where was that? said Bowell. On the stove or the shelf? And she said, on the back part of the stove. I had washed the meat grinder and wiped it off and put it on the shelf of the stove to dry. I generally put my iron things up there to dry. Mama, he says, I burned me so terrible. I was so scared I didn't know what to do. All his clothes were wet. I said, you had better take your clothes off. He said, my head burns terribly. I heard baking soda and water was good to put on it so it would not get blistered, so I put that on. I bathed the towel in it and put it on his neck. Was all the brine spilt? That's bowel. Yes, I think the bowl was nearly empty. Was that brine boiling hot? Well, it had been boiling, but it had stood for some time on the stove, so it was not so warm, but it was warm enough to burn. I rubbed him with Vaseline and liniment. And then the doctor asks if she notices the wound on the back of his head. And she said that she had. Was it bleeding? Not very much. The bleeding seemed all to be stopped. He said he was afraid he was going to lose some of his hair on account of that burning. And he was complaining terribly. Then she said they returned to the parlor and she said, sat there a couple hours anyway. By then he was beginning to get a little better. And I said, don't you think you'd better lay down? And he said, probably I will. And I said, you had better not go upstairs to bed, but lay down on the lounge and I will fix that up there for it is warmer. He thought so. And I went and fixed the lounge for him and took off his clothes and put on his nightshirt. I told him, I think I'll go down and lay down. I'll go up and lay down with the girls. And if there's anything you want, call me down. So I went up and went to sleep. I was tired. To be fair, it was late. Yeah. Just It's the way that she describes it like, dancing on the details like there's no i did this i did this i did this not really caring like a person probably would if something like that went down then she says all at once i heard him calling he was over by the door and calling mama as fast as he could and so the children waked up and i was trying to think and said they should keep quiet that i had to go to papa that papa was burned i tried to put on my clothes because it was cold I went down the steps, and when I came down, he was walking around the room saying, Oh, mama, mama, my head, and I don't know what the matter, I don't know what the matter is with my head. I asked what the matter was. Bitch, he just said he didn't know what the matter was. My head, my head, he says. It's like something going on in my head. Papa, I said, what are you talking about? Let me see what it is. I suppose you rubbed off the skin. Oh, my head, my head. Well, if you think it is best, I had better send for the doctor. I said, and I went upstairs and I got the girl up and she went over to the Nicholson's. I also call my daughter the girl. And when I come from upstairs, he was holding his head and said, oh, mama, I guess I'm going to die. I asked him what was paining him so terrible and took him some water. And he said not to touch his head. When Nicholson came <laughs> to the door, I was rubbing his head and I opened the door, I think. And they come in and he then thought he was gone. 
but I did not think he was gone before you came. I think he was only unconscious. It's like, whew. He says, Bowel asks her, how long does she think it was from the time he was hurt until the time that he died? And she said, well, I guess it must have been after 11 o'clock he was hurt. I didn't think he was gone until after you come here. And he said, you sat up with him two hours after he was hurt? And she said, yes. Of course, I wasn't upstairs long. I said goodnight and went upstairs, and there was a short time when he called me. Did you say that he was burned bad? He was red on the neck, and the skin was blistered by the ear here. Hello, the doctor didn't find a blister. Like, why is she holding on to this story? It's so, it's all so weird. There was no burn marks found on him. They couldn't find any burns, but supposedly he was blistered a few minutes before he died. He said, how do you think he got that hurt on his head? And she said, I don't know, doctor. I picked up the meat grinder from the floor, and I think that must have tumbled on him one way or another. That's what I think, but I didn't see it. Anyway, this goes on a little bit. He he asks her if he bled from the nose, and she said he didn't bleed from the nose. And he says, you've always lived happily together, you and him. And she said, as far as I know, and shrugs. <laughs> she sounds like a, a carnival barker. <laughs> She's like, yeah. Like, like like when she's saying all this stuff. And then he fell on his head, you know, bleeding. And then it came off the top of the shelf. After this, Jenny Gunnis, the oldest daughter, testifies. And basically, I don't need to repeat everything because she just says exactly what Belle said. Okay. Exactly what Belle said. Because Mama said. Hey, if Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. <laughs> you want to so- get the meat grinder? Tell him what I told you. Bowel questions these people at this inquiry and is like, cannot, he's looking at the same stuff going, what? I cannot, this does not make sense. And is thinking she's a black widow and wondering about her first husband's death and just thinking that it's all really fishy. He even asks Jenny on the stand if her father, Peter Gunnis, her stepfather, Peter Gunnis, left any money. So he's like really thinking this, but... Swan Nicholson testified at the end. He was the last witness to testify. And he said he didn't see no burns on Peter's body or blood on the couch where Peter had supposedly lain with a bleeding, gaping wound on the back of his fractured skull. When asked if he thought Peter could have died, as Bell said, with the meat grinder falling on his head, he said, and I put in, I wrote a note in the book, please don't kill me too, Bell." He said, I think it could have possibly, but I never thought there was anything else but the way she told me. (laughs) Whatever you say, Belle. When asked if he thought Belle had killed Peter, he said, no, I never thought that. No, sir. They'd be like a couple of children and the same as the day they were married. Though he had also earlier testified he didn't know anything about them at all. His wife had been to their house twice, and he had only been to their house once. (laughs) He was scared shitless. Yeah. Sweating. The community was really skeptical, and the rumor mill was churning about Belle murdering Peter. And apparently, she didn't help anything when she was seen at Peter's funeral appearing to put on a false show of grief. Little Albert Nicholson, Swan's son, saw her putting her hands up in front of her face and then peering between her fingers and fake crying. Checking who's watching. The quote is, During the preaching, Belle sat moaning with her fingers before her eyes. Albert Nicholson could see, however, that she was peering alertly between them to check the effect she was making. (laughs) Apparently, not heeding his father's advice, little Albert was telling anyone who would listen after the funeral that Belle was guilty. Well, at least until he said... Pa told me to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) But after all this, when the results of the inquiry were given, here's what Dr. Bowell said. After having examined the body and heard the evidence, we so find that the deceased came to his death by the accidental falling of the auger part of the sausage mill falling from the heating shelf of the cook stove in his kitchen and striking him on the back of the head. The impact of said auger part of sausage mill causing fracture fracture of skull and intracranial hemorrhage resulting in death but years later a few days before her own death spoiler little myrtle Sorensen had told a classmate my mama killed my papa she hit him with a meat cleaver and he died don't tell a soul 
It's interesting, though, that there's not any reference to the burns or the broken nose or anything in the inquiry report. Yeah, right? Just the meat grinder fall. So Belle has definitely learned that she can say whatever wild-ass shit she wants, and people just be like, okay. A few months after this, a midwife came to Belle's farmstead to assist Belle in childbirth and found her up and about with a baby that had already been born and dressed and appeared older than a newborn, according to everybody who lived around there. Where is she finding these babies? I don't know. Nobody knows. Every, so, the rumors didn't come out until after she was outed as a murderer. So then the rumors were like terrible. But it, it could just be that people that were hard on their luck were like, sure, take my baby. You have money. Baby in a bassinet and like an open window. I, I wish. <laughs> so you can get all the babies you want? Yeah, I used to I used to wonder if there was a way that I could like create my own safe haven. <laughs> You know, they have the safe haven laws, you yeah. know, where you could like drop off a baby. <laughs> I was like, what profession do I have to be in to be the person who receives these abandoned babies? A neon light, like the in and out sign pointing at your house. Yeah. <laughs> drop your baby off Baby's here. here. They, they used to have, I don't know if they still do, but they used to have those in Korea and they had these little doors and you could kind of open them on one side and put a baby in like a little drawer and then push it in and then somebody would take it out on the other side and then you could just leave your baby to be adopted and i want all the babies but i'm gonna have to kill some husbands to get the money to take care of all of the babies so man i feel i feel a little for bell gunnis here i'm just kidding i don't you hear the whole story a neighbor saw bell later that day and she was washing clothes at the cistern which is like heavy labor to scrub clothes oh yeah on a washboard on a washboard and she said like girl you should not be up you just had a baby and bell said Ah, in the old country, they never go to bed after they get a baby. Right back to work. The next day, a visiting neighbor saw her chasing pigs around the yard and also was like, what are you doing? You just had a baby. And she's like, eh, in the old country, we chase pigs all the time after we get a baby. Like, I don't know what she said, but she's Good like, luck. whatever. People assumed the baby, whose name was Philip, was adopted. Like, nobody believed the story that she gave birth and was like, no one knew she was pregnant. And then all of a sudden she was, I mean, if she was pregnant when Peter died, she probably would have said, we were very happy we were going to have a baby. So Peter's brother, Gust, was in no way convinced by the inquiry findings. Oh, yeah. He was like, uh, especially with the coincidentally timed death of her first husband, Gust is like, this lady is shady. So, and he was also really concerned about the quick death of his niece after she married his brother. Oh, yeah. That he was not convinced that that wasn't murder. I wonder if his brother ever told him anything. Probably. Because he he must have kept in touch. If you still see my car here in the parking spot, Mm. you know, I'm probably dead. Right. Type of thing. Catherine Knight. Yeah, again. He also knew that Peter had a life insurance policy of $2,500 with Swanhild listed as the beneficiary, and he wanted to make sure she actually got the money. So sometime in nineteen, in early 1903, he went to Laporte to pay a visit to the farm and check on Swanhild's well-being and also figure out what was happening with the money from the life insurance. And Swanhild seemed to be doing fine. He couldn't find anything wrong with her circumstances. Okay. And Belle was known to be kind to children. Yeah, yeah. To a point. With killers, they do have people that they love, strangely, oddly. To a point. I don't know if it's love. It's like the maybe the closest thing they can do to love. Ted Bundy had a girlfriend, right? All the way up until all Yeah, but murders. did he love her? I'd like to think so. <laughs> I'm a sap. Best that he was it. Is that because you're really a serial killer, but you really love me? <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Tripping over my words. <laughs> I'm going to get you in trouble. But wasn't Ted Bundy the one that used to look under the covers at his girlfriend's body all the time like she was a science project? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's foreplay. <laughs> okay. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you don't know. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have to say that. <laughs> anyway, he gets to the farm. He sees he sees Swanhild is doing fine. And Belle tells him that Peter had turned over the insurance policy to a mining company for the purchase of stock. And if the stock amounted to anything, Swanhild would be a rich girl. A likely story. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. But Gus asked to see the certificates. And she was like... I can't show you them. But 
do you want to come stay here and live here and manage the farm with me? Don't do it. Red flags. Gus, you in danger. Red flag. He said later about this, he didn't like her eyes. Yeah, yeah. And so he told her no. And he took Swanhild in the middle of the night and disappeared. And they never, she never saw them again. Atta boy, yeah. And he was the more prettier of the two brothers. So he would have definitely had it coming. These handsome Norwegian brothers. I hope he found someone nice. At this point, Belle's no longer considered a good neighbor around town. She was frequently in conflict with her neighbors because her livestock were always wandering into their yards to graze, which isn't just a politeness issue because they eat the grazing fields and take away what's available to those people's livestock. So yeah, it's like no, that's, really bad. can't do that. I know they ate all my grass, but can they eat some of your grass too? Yeah, Belle's just like, whatever. It's just grass. It's all my grass. She's like, Catherine Knight, is this your house? It's my house. Is this your grass? No, it's my cow's grass. Yoo-hoo! <laughs> it's my cow's grass. Anyway, this neighbor got really fed up with her, and her two calves kept wandering over to his property, and he started threatening her, like, if you don't keep them from coming over here, I'm going to start charging you for grazing on my land. Yeah, yeah. And she didn't give a shit. So they wandered back over there, and he penned them up and was like, I told you I was going to charge you for grazing. If you want them back, you have to pay me a dollar for them grazing my land. So she apparently, in like a huff, paid the dollar, got the calves back. I mean, and she then, could afford it. Then a few days later, or maybe weeks, but really shortly thereafter, she saw some of his cattle grazing down the road. Oh, shit. And she drove them all the way down to her own property and penned them up and was like, you have to pay me a dollar to get your cows back. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, no, you drove them off the road. Like, you just straight up stole them. I'm not paying you to get them back. And then he reached for the gate. Like, he's like, I'm just going to get them back. Like, this this lady's crazy. She's not going to keep me from my cows. And Belle turns to little Jenny and is like, go in the house and get the revolver. <laughs> oh, shit. So. We're going to light this guy on fire. So he paid her a dollar. <laughs> okay. And then the Nicholsons, who had completely saved her bacon when her husband was mysteriously killed by a falling sausage grinder they had these they were her neighbors too so they had these kinds of run-ins with her and her pigs were constantly grazing on their land and finally swan nicholson was so upset about it that he corralled them all up loaded them into his wagon drove them into town to file a report with the constable and the constable was like yeah this is bullshit and he held the pigs, and Belle had to go down with her wagon and pay a fine of $1 for each pig to get them back and take them home. Yeah. And she was so mad. And so her and Swan, luckily for Swan, though, it didn't really go further than this. They just never spoke to each other again and never set foot on each other's farmsteads again. Why didn't they just build a fence? Why didn't they build a fence? I don't know. <laughs> they have corrals. Now, despite being a budding black widow and a terrible neighbor and just a general asshole. Belle was kind of a badass. At this point, she's a single mom. She wears men's clothes and she does all the men's work on the farm. Yeah. And she's like really strong. So I haven't really said, and it's probably because I'm like rebelling against this author was like, she was six one and almost 300 pounds. And she was just so like big and awful and like whatever. And it's like, I don't know, like that's kind of super fucked up. <laughs> like She tended farm all, all she's her like, life. She was probably yoked. She's like big and strong and like capable of doing stuff. And clearly to all of these farm men, she's a babe. They like her. She's not having trouble attracting men. So anyway, he's a dick. But I had him pointed out, she's really big. She's really big and she's really strong. Like Catherine Knight, really big and really strong. And so she'd do all this men's work on the farm. She was like doing the, the plowing, the mowing, the planting, the harvesting, like all the things, right? And then she's doing all the livestock work. And then she's, she's the only woman at these livestock auctions. And they're like tromping around in the mud, looking at all these animals corralled. And she's picking them and bidding on them. And then she would buy a 200-pound pig. And then she would take it over to her wagon and just bodily pick up the pig and like throw it into the wagon. Wow. She would just pick up a 200-pound pig and like toss it into a wagon. I know big grown men who could not do that. She's 
kind of cool in that's, that way. That, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And then she'd slaughter it and butcher it start to finish by herself, all alone, no support, like no help. That's cool. Also very Catherine Knight vibesy. Yeah. So in that way, Belle was super cool. But even though she was super badass and could do all of that stuff herself, the farm was big enough that she had she had a ton of livestock. She had a really prosperous little farm, and she couldn't do all the work herself, so she needed a man. Oh, and that is where we'll pick up on the second part <laughs> of this podcast. All right. Bye. Say bye. Bye. Bye.